Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our next Normal Leadership Series, featuring Elevate's chairman and CEO, Liam Brown, talking with Bill Horn, the CEO of Quovent, a legal spend management and data analytics solution provider. During this episode, Liam and Bill discuss turnaround leadership and the unique CEO experience of leading and running a business, in this case, competitive law companies, during 2020. So, Bill, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you as a business leader, what I call a law company leader. If it's okay with you, I'd like to ask you to tell me and the listeners a little bit about how you actually got into the role that you have now. What was the arc of the career that led you to where you are now? Sure. Well, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. And it's good to spend some time with you. I came to Quovent about five years ago. I've worked for the same private equity firm since 2004, Soper's Capital out of New York. I'm their fixer. So I'm not the guy who gets the companies that are going up and to the right. I get the companies that are going down and in some direction. So came to the company. It was a little bit of trouble. We were bleeding some cash and had gone through all the investors' money. So we had to do something else. So over a period of time, I've got the ship turned around and I've enjoyed what we're doing here and I've enjoyed learning another industry. Been watching what you guys have been doing. Congrats on your success. Wish you the best. You described yourself as a fixer. How do you end up as a corporate fixer? I mean, what is the training or the background or the experience that leads you into that role and then actually staying in it, pursuing that as a career? So it's probably a variety of experiences. If I go way back to my IBM days when I first started selling, I never got the good territory. Stepping into situations that needed some help and I've just kind of fallen into it. I didn't think that would be my career, but I actually really enjoy it. And I've got a methodology that I go through. It's not the same for every company, but some building blocks of how to get things back right. And then we've been fortunate to have some good exits along the way and keeping the band together. I want to ask you about your methodology in a minute, but what attracts you to working with the same people or working with the same private equity firm? First and foremost, the guy who runs it, Andy Paul, he's a very direct communicator. And what you see is what you get. We can have a very frank conversation on any level. And over the years, we've developed a great deal of trust. I was his first remote CEO ever in 2004. So I actually commuted from Atlanta to Nashville, ran a gift card company. So he said, let's see how this goes. And it went quite well. And over the years, you've been in situations where people get out over their skis and then stretch the story. And then the next thing is a stretch. And they're trying to do the right thing, but they're people that I liken to home builders. There's people who are great at putting the sticks up. And then there's people who are great at making sticks a home. And what I do is the home's up, but there's some problems in the house. And we come in and try to make a house a home. And it's a very different skill set. It's not for everybody. You got to be a great listener. You have to be pretty patient. And you have to have investors who also have the patience to say, okay, we can get through this thing and and enough dry powder to do what we've got to do. And it's worked pretty well. I think I'm on number eight right now. So 
Do you work with any of the same people again on the uh, management teams as you've moved from place to place? No, typically I'm precluded from doing that. So when we have an exit, I can't touch the folks. I've had one situation where I brought somebody back, but interestingly, great guy, the skills that he brought to the prior company didn't transfer well to the new company. So you got to be somewhat malleable in your skill set because however you put that house up or however you're fixing the house, it's different the next time. So if you try to apply the same fix, you're going to fail. If the same fix doesn't work from place to place, you still need a framework for how do you approach something like this? Can you comment at all about the framework or the methodology that you bring as a new leader that is brought into a business? Doesn't matter what industry. So we'll say in the legal industry, a new leader brought into a business to radically improve the performance of that business. Mm -hmm. So for me, it all starts with the people. And that sounds maybe a little too broad. But I make a point of up to 100 people, I will meet with every person in the company for 20 to 30 minutes. And I have some questions, a little bit of secret sauce. I have four questions that I ask everybody. The same four questions. I type them in as my laptop and I turn it around after number one and I show them this is what I'm doing. And when I'm finished, I'm going to share this with everyone in the company unless it's something so sensitive that I can't or somebody said, Hey, Bill, this is in confidence. So I keep those somewhere else, but it will be randomized. So when I meet with the next person, three, four, on, 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 you will see that there's no pattern here and you can't put it together. By the time I finish that, Typically, by the time I'm halfway through, I have a good idea of what the big problems are. I may not know the little ones, but I know the big ones. And as you know, when you come into something new, especially if people go to my LinkedIn profile, they immediately don't trust me. So, you know, I'm going to fire everybody. I'm going to, you know, the whole list goes on. So I'm standing up there smiling, glad to see everybody. Been through this will be great. So that's the first phase. And while that's going on, I have a planning process that I've used over the years and it's evolved. I had a great mentor by the name of Larry McTavish. And Larry and I saw very much the same on strategy and operational planning. I think too many companies look at five-year plans. I don't believe in those. I have a hard time believing in a one-year plan, but I break things up depending on the severity of the problem, either into quarters or six months or a year. And there's a methodology we follow that helps us to come up with a plan based upon what we're hearing to get things fixed. And that process takes a little bit of time, but it starts to bring the team together or it pulls the team apart. And I realize where I've got holes and what we have to fix. So big picture, that's what we do. It's worked well across a lot of portfolio companies. With regard to your second statement, I do the same thing around, we call it horizon planning. And it is kind of breaking things into, you know, what are the goals and initiatives what does success look like? How do we know we're on track? Who's accountable for doing what? Then you have to be patient, don't you? Because you have to work the plan. Yes. You have to let the plan play out. Talk a bit about what is it like to be a a fixer in law? So I'm not a lawyer by training and we have a lot of lawyers who work for the company. What we do, Legal Bill Review, we're not always completely trusted or loved by the legal side of the house. So I've had to figure out what makes lawyers tick in that situation as opposed to what we do. And I think we've done a good job of now really talking about the company as a tech-enabled service that we help people get together with their law firm. 
and have a better relationship with their law firm. So it's not necessarily all about savings per se. There's a lot more value that we can deliver as opposed to the broad category of legal bill review and saving people X percent of their spend. So a lot of our time now is on how do we become more of a friendly with the lawyers, with the law firms, and we're sitting on top of a ton of data. So we're modeling that data. We're doing some work with some AI. We're in that mix and we're making good progress there. And I think that's going to help that relationship grow and strengthen. Were there any characteristics of the legal sector that you found uniquely interesting or different or perhaps surprisingly similar to the other sectors that you'd worked in previously? Not sure in a lot of similarities. I think slow to change is something I don't think I expected coming into it. I didn't understand the full breadth of the depth of relationship between the corporate GC, if you will, and the law firm and the concerns of jeopardizing a relationship because we're now counting the dollars that are being paid. And we're not able to solve that in all situations. We find it's much easier in others, especially new GCs. They're wanting to make their footprint. But I think what we're finding is now that younger partners are coming along, this is just much more a way of life. And they know how to deal with it. I was talking to a law firm, a Wall Street firm the other day, and they're dealing with something like 27 different billing companies. And it's really given the law firms a headache because their DSOs are going up. They're a cash business, so they're not going to get their bonuses as they might have anticipated. Throw a little pandemic on top of it because everybody cut things back. So I think it's a good chance for law firms to rethink things. There's lots of opportunity. When you think about the businesses that we run, we are in the legal industry, kind of similar to the way that you stand up in front of a team of colleagues whenever you're looking to turn around or improve a new business. You're basically saying, let me paint a picture of what the future is going to look like. And in nine months, things are going to be great. So when you're doing something like working with a law department and their law firms, and and then someone in that room is thinking, well, hang on a second. Now we're talking about money. How's this going to impact my relationship? How do we actually build trust and bring people along so that they really are prepared to engage with the change that they need to in order to get to this future better state? I think the answer is in data. The more information that we can share that's meaningful to someone, not, you know, you're going to save 16% or whatever your number is. That's not the meaningful number. The meaningful number is what's inside of all that. What are the patterns? What are your law firms producing for you? Are they efficient in doing that? Are they doing what you asked them to do? And how do they measure up against all the other law firms you're working with? And it's pretty interesting when you start giving them data that they can assimilate and then have a conversation. Because the law firms want to have the conversation. They want to do a better job. But every once in a while, like anywhere, you've got somebody who you know maybe doesn't follow the rules as much as the other person. And so they might be a big biller and they shouldn't have been a big biller. And it's a conversation. It's just like anything with an employer in a turnaround or whatever it is. Here's the information we have. Tell me what you think about it. And once you can do that, and the center is data, not the relationship, 
the relationship gets better, the partnership gets stronger, and there's understanding. And they may say, you know what? I get that. Okay, this time, that one's on me. Don't worry about it. Next time, not so much. Okay. And they got to go back, tell her or tell him that can't do this with this client. Oh, well, I had no idea. But that's going to help this person in their career because they'll be a better lawyer for it. They'll provide better customer service and everybody wins. So I think what we're doing is highly valuable. Give us the chance to share the data, which our clients do. Then they come back and say, you know what? This never hurt the relationship. We have a better relationship. I'd like to think that we think of each other as polite competitors. I think in this area, this is something that people are nervous about stepping into because they actually have a relationship and the business issues, the fees, billing, the review and response to all wrapped up together. And that can be quite confusing. And as you go through this process, as you've indicated, of starting to separate out the data, and that leads to a conversation about what's valued and what isn't valued, and that leads to changes in behavior. All of that is parallel to the relationship. Bringing the business of law conversations to the business. Law firms have made great progress in moving their business functions into some of these conversations so that you're not always having a billing conversation with the billing partner. You're having a billing conversation with the people whose business function is to to manage the billing or financial aspects of the running of the law firm. Correct. Running a business in this environment, running a business through these times, health, healthcare, the social change, the economic environment. What is it like being a CEO right now? Very different. So we've been remote since March 14th. We've had some people coming and going, but probably like you, I like to be in front of the troops. I enjoy it. It's fun. And you pick up on lots of things just because you're around. So when you're not around, you don't get to pick up on all that stuff. So I think it's more challenging. Communication, we've been talking about that, plays an even bigger role. And staying present plays a huge role. You and I are on video. This is tiresome to a lot of people. I think empathy right now, that's a heightened sensitivity for us. And sometimes as CEOs, we can be a little more terse, a little more direct because what we're trying to get done. So it's a big challenge. I think that's a real, I mean, it's just being self-reflective. I would say that's probably my Achilles heel right now. I'm used to building relationships with people who aren't in the same office as me. And I'm aware that people who are used to working and engaging with me more directly some have commented on, you're a different person, Liam, in person, and you're a different person online. And I've sort of pushed it, well, what do you, you, know, what do you mean by that? And what I get to inevitably is, well, you're less empathetic. It's an interesting thing to be aware of. And you think of your colleagues now listening to this podcast, or you think of the younger executives that are developing their career. How do they develop and improve the way that we express empathy so that it really lands for the people that we're interfacing with. I don't mean all the time and perfectly. I mean, how do we get better at this so that it lands with the people? Yeah, I think we have to talk about it, number one. Number two, I think it's harder for first-line managers to be consistent with that all the time. So consistency of leadership is something we talk about. No high highs, no low lows. Be steady. I do a fair amount of reading. And I try to, with my team, and encourage them to then send it to their direct reports. 
current articles might be from Harvard Business Review or McKinsey or whatever, who are researching all this and talking to lots of people and trying to keep the dialogue up here instead of down there. But I think what's interesting is there's a change that is going to happen again. This remote thing is not for everybody. And it's very difficult for some. I think for working parents, particularly difficult. Young school-aged children, I mean, my heart broke the other day when a first grader trying to learn to read over a laptop in a makeshift table in a kitchen. I mean, talk about a struggle. And so we're worried about earnings and revenue growth and all that kind of stuff. And this parent is wondering, is my child going to be massively behind here? So as leaders, we have to be empathetic to that. Empathy gets us this far. We also have a business to run in this new whatever we're experiencing. And still, we're capitalists. So let's go. And how can we help you? And if this is not for you, then tell us it's not for you. And maybe there's something else we can have you do. That is a reality. And as employers, as managers, what can we do to be aware that that's affecting some of the people that we work with? And we have the reality of we are running a business. I read as I was preparing to speak with you, I read some of the articles that you had written about and interviews. And if it's okay, I am interested. One of the ones I read about was balancing work from home and returning to work. And I thought, if it's okay, we'd be good to talk about that. That is a question that we're all speaking about now. How do we approach that? When do we approach that? How are you assessing or thinking about the appetite for returning to work and planning to the workplace and planning for that? Well, sort of what approach or approaches are you thinking about or taking? We were originally considering almost a pod approach of people coming back because I talked to a lot of staff members. They're dying to come back. Some are not, by the way. They, you know, hey, I don't have to send my doggy daycare. I love I'm not driving and gasoline and all the other stuff. But there are a number of people who say, I miss the water cooler chat. I miss just that informal communication where you can walk down the hallway and solve a problem. And today we have Teams, we have email, we have text, and we have a phone. But so many times people are dodging the communication and just moving the monkey to somebody else via email. So we are thinking about how to communicate better as a company. And what does that mean? And does it mean we can put people in small groups to come back? Problem is, one person gets sick, the ripple effect of that is massive. It is something that my team and I talk about every two weeks. We look at all the data, we talk about our people, and then we make a decision, you know, does it make sense again to open in January? So we're thinking about it. To your primary question a second ago, there is a cost of this to business. And I think it's going to gently raise our costs as we have to figure out how to do this because everybody's just not as productive as you may want them to be working from home for any variety of reasons that they can't control. It's not their fault. The pandemic's not their fault. You know, they have young, great, sweet children who require mom and dad. It's not their fault. So we as businesses have to learn how to accommodate that and get through it. I appreciate you speaking so transparently about that. I think we're lucky that we are, well, I was going to speak for myself, a gray-haired CEOs. Uh, <laughs> at this time, I think this is an extremely difficult time to be a business leader. I have a, some of the things that I do is I work with other CEOs in our industry, sometimes first-time CEOs. And you know they talk about the struggle they have as 
this is not a normal time for any CEO. And it's certainly an incredibly challenging time for someone who is going through that whole journey that I'm sure that we all went through, which is, am I really a capable CEO? Am I really doing a good job? Am I a good leader? Will people trust me, follow me, believe in me? So we're lucky we have seen economic cycles before. While we haven't seen a pandemic, we've grappled with, I'll call them other types of existential threats to business. And that allows you to bring tools to the table. So for example, one of mine, I wonder sort of how you feel about this, is as we have operations around the world where there are local authorities that allow people to come back to the workplace, one of the things that we've said is we'll let people make their own individual and personal choice. So as long as we stay below, for example, 20% of our footprint, people can make a choice. And what we found is similar to what you've said is there are a tremendous number of people, certainly not everyone, but a tremendous number of people that want to spend some time in the office. And that sometime may just be an afternoon a week. Getting away from the kitchen table or the bedside table, being mindful of our social responsibilities as employers and the role that we have in protecting our employees and also protecting societies from transmission, and also being mindful of the just the human mental stress and wellness element of all of this. And being mindful of we do actually have to be employers of people and people need to be able to rely on their paycheck, in the, especially at a time like this. You're 100% right. The mental health side of this is not getting smaller. It's getting bigger. I've mentioned it to a lot of people, you know, try meditation, try anything because the same old view and the same old thing every day, day in, day out, is not good for anybody. Well, as we sort of wind towards the end of our conversation... I like to ask people a couple of questions and I'll tell you the first one is that you can have it just playing in the back of your mind. I'd like to ask you, leadership in tough times requires dot, dot, dot. And so you can just have that. When I get back to that question in a minute, you might have the opportunity to, to think about that. And I'd like you to finish that sentence. And then while that's kind of playing in the back of your mind, I'd like to just ask you, you said you read a lot. Are there any books or authors that you think that young leaders or people who aspire to leadership in law or in any business, I suppose, should invest the time in reading because that book or that author was impactful to you? So on the book side, there's probably a handful. The one I'm enjoying at the moment, I haven't finished it, is uh, Bob Iger's book, He Ran Disney. I've enjoyed some, it's not been the whole book, but it's been some writings from Larry Bossidy be Allied Signal. Then there's a book that I just ordered the other day. I haven't cracked the cover yet, but it's Bill Gates' favorite business book of all time. And if you've not watched The Mind of Bill Gates, I would encourage young CEOs to watch that. And it's not about Microsoft. The Mind of Bill Gates. Yeah. It's a three-part series. I think each series is about 45 minutes long, but it's how he thinks. And I think the more that young leaders can see how other people think and see if that's a way they ought to think or shouldn't think. So I've always challenged my thinking. And that's what I get out of reading. I really love the notion of reading books as a way of having a conversation, a dialogue with other people's ideas. It's sort of, I guess it's a personal dialogue, but you're learning other things from other people. On that note, I've given you some time to think about leadership in tough times requires dot, dot, dot. Okay. So I'd say courage. I'd say resilience. 
and empathy. You don't get off that easily. Why those three words? I think it's increasingly difficult for a lot of people to be resilient right now. People are tired of this. And it's the unknown that bothers people more than the known. So are we going to have a vaccine? Are we going to go through another pandemic? Our numbers going to suffer because people just aren't letting law firms do as much as they were. Being resilient and then saying, look, I can get through this and we'll figure this thing out. Courage, courage to tell the truth, courage to tell people maybe what they don't want to hear, but it's they need to hear it. Courage to be that guy or that woman who is standing up in front of everybody with the good story and with their chin up and but a realist about what's going on, not fake leader. And then empathy, trying to feel what people are going through. You just don't know what people are dealing with. And I think to be a genuine leader today, you got to try to get into that. But not so far, you lose your perspective as a business leader because we're all paid to get a job done. But if you can recognize that and be that person to be a helper, and that requires us to listen and ask the question. So it's, it's not how are you doing? It's how are you, capital Y-O-U, doing? And really mean it and stop. And when they say something, say, well, tell me what that means. And you'll have a much more genuine conversation with folks. Bill, it's been great. Thank you for your time. And I can see why you have improved the fortune of Quovent. I wish you and your team continued good fortune. Not too much good fortune, but it's, this has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for your insights. I enjoyed it and uh, have a great 2021. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com. 